Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So today we'll be answering questions about meditation and practical Buddhism. If you have questions, you can post them in the chat anytime. Uh, but we'll start with a 15-minute meditation. During that time, you can pa uh, post questions, and our team will collect them and organize them and present them after the meditation. We have 15 minutes as a start to clear our minds and focus our attention, purify our intentions. So starting now, 15 minutes.
All right, we're back. We'll begin with questions. You can continue to ask questions in the chat. Uh, from now on, anything that's not a question will be removed from chat. So if you don't have any questions, just close your eyes and stay mindful. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Are Vipassana 10-day noble silence retreats beneficial? And if so, how should one prepare? Uh, well, vipassana retreats mean the cultivation of vipassana, so the cultivation of clear seeing or seeing clearly is, of course, beneficial. It's the most beneficial practice. A noble silence is also beneficial, though noble silence is uh, well, it's a bit complicated. It doesn't just mean not talking. Actually, at the deepest level, it means entering into attainments of absorption and cessation. Uh, but even just keeping silent for ten days is is beneficial for sure. Um, we recommend people to prepare by practicing at home. One thing we've found helps really well is doing an at-home course. So we set up this at-home system where people can get into the practice at home, and then when they come and do a, an intensive course, it's, it's empirically, as we've seen, um, it's much easier for them to complete the intensive course. When one has to walk fast or do something quickly, how can you be mindful? Do you note faster, for example, right-stepping, left-stepping? It feels rather chaotic than mindful. Well, try to not do things too fast when possible, but of course when you have to, just note what you can. Like, for instance, if you're walking quickly, you would probably more likely say right, left, right, left, or, or even just walking, walking. Um, so you don't have to note each step if it's very quick. If you're running, for example, you can say running, running. You can also note other things like the feelings in the body, the, the heartbeat and the muscles and so on, feelings. I mean, there's no magic way to, to do it right. You have to understand why you're doing it, what it's for, and then you understand it's not it's not about doing it exactly this way or that way. While meditating, when the mind wanders, is it better to note remembering for past memories and imagining for future expectations? Or should one just note thinking? Again, there's no magic right way. Uh, I would stick to thinking unless it's clearly a memory or clearly a, um, a planning or something like that. But neither one is going to magically lead to success. They're just words. They're means of reminding yourself, to keeping you from extrapolating upon them. I heard a bad memory play out in my mind from when I was a child. 
my mother shouting nasty names at me whilst drunk. I watched myself block it out. How should I note? So, um, the, 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 the idea that you watched yourself block it out is it can be a little misleading. That's your interpretation of the experience. So ask yourself, what is the actual experience? And it's probably a little more complicated. There's probably a disliking, uh, but there may be other things. There may be worry, there may be fear, there may be, uh, sadness, um, there may be, and there are probably some bodily experience as well, like tension. And you interpret the tension usually as some kind of repression, but it's really just tension. I mean, the thought and memory goes away. It doesn't. You don't block it. That doesn't. That's not a reality. Reality is it goes away. It stops anyway. I mean, nothing lasts very long. Um, and you're left with the the reactions and the physical responses and so on. So note tension in the body and in the head and sometimes pain in the head and that sort of thing. Heart beating fast, depending if it's fear or whatever. How does rebirth happen? What is the process from the last moment of this life to the first moment of next life? Well, much like... Uh, and it's very rude. It's much like the the process between any two thought moments, any two moments of experience. One moment ceases, the next moment arises, nothing special. But of course, there's a lot of practical differences with the breakup of the physical body. There's a release um and a change of object that the mind has to go through because it's no longer um, it's no longer working with what it's used to be working with, what's accustomed to be working with for so long. If you if you lived in this body for a long time, the mind becomes very accustomed to that, and so it's disorienting. And then there's also the the, the intensity of the mental activity because of the lack of disturbance. Like the body can be quite a distraction to the mind, a disturbance. It's diffuse, diffusing or making diffuse, making less focused and less concentrated, less intense. And the body is a dulling effect. But when that's all gone, the mind is very acute. And that's why you remember with such clarity things that happened during your life. And why there are imaginations and dreams of uh, that, that lead to future rebirth. So people have dreams that, that lead them to the next birth. So there's a lot practically that's different, but not categorically different. Like it's not it's not even very much qualitatively different from a dream or an into any intense experience. Except it's it's more intense, but it's still just experiences. And it's not categorically different, so it's just like you're experiencing now. Still just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, but because it's so intense, it's it catches you off guard if you're not well-trained, which is why um, the best way to prepare for death is, is mental training, mindfulness. How is believing in rebirth different to believing in a creator God? 
Huh. Well, I don't think anyone who believes in rebirth believes that rebirth created anything. Creator God means uh, God who created the universe. Nobody believes that rebirth created the universe or that rebirth involves the creation of the universe, except if you think of, of a person's individual life as, as a universe, but that's a whole different thing. Um, maybe you mean a creator God who creates people. So like, I, I didn't, I didn't think of, of God as being something that creates beings that are born, but it's still totally different, of course, because that's the exact opposite of rebirth. Rebirth, and it's not, rebirth is a bad, it's just technically a bad word because there's not anything being reborn. There's future birth, right? So it's not like I die and I'm reborn as Noah, this little Jewish boy. That's That, that would be rebirth, but it's not that. that Groundhog Day would be rebirth, or that sort of thing. That's not, nobody really believes that. I've never heard of that sort of, uh, religious belief in any tradition. It's always future birth, so it's not really rebirth. Um, except people think of it as a as a being being uh, coming back, leaving and coming back, and that's not what Buddhists believe. So in that sense, other religions might believe in rebirth, but that is very very different. I mean, it's the exact opposite, as I said, of of the belief in a creator god. Like poof, God creates you, wills you into existence. I mean, it's nothing like it's it's diametrically opposed the idea that the rebirth or the birth came from something prior as opposed to being as opposed to being created so i don't understand the connection uh, i've heard people ask what the difference between karma and god is but never rebirth so i don't understand the connection you might make between the two at any rate i mean in buddhism especially a creator god has no place there's there it's a it, it's completely foreign to the idea of arising experiences arising and ceasing there's not even any being that does the arising and ceasing let alone a god that would create such beings How did the concepts of no self, no living entity, no soul, and rebirth, karma, reside together? Well, they had to be modified, or sorry, the, the rebirth karma had to be modified. So, which is why I say rebirth and karma aren't really Buddhist concepts, they're Hindu concepts. And the Buddha used similar words, or even the same words, but he redefined them. He said, you know, you want to know how karma works, why it is that it's actually true that um, actions have consequences. It's because of inclination of the mind. Our psychological states of mind have, have efficacy. They affect future states of mind, which in turn are going to, of course, affect, uh, affect uh, our situation, the world around us, our relationships with others. I mean, th this is karma is not something mysterious that anyone should doubt about. When you're a terrible, terrible person, bad things happen to you. I mean, not not magically bad things, but just obvious bad things. You go to jail, or people don't like you. You you, you ruin your relationships. Um, the Buddha was just a little bit more pointed about it, saying that it in fact is unavoidable. It's not random. It's not escapable. Uh, bad, bad, bad. Well, 
escapable is putting to no it's it's not that it's not escapable it's that it's um it's it's a direct correlation that the correlation between effects and causes is always going to be um the same unethical deeds the, the results of unethical deeds are are unpleasant and the results of ethical deeds are pleasant um and and with rebirth as I said, it's not rebirth of a being because that would have something to do with the self or a soul. So it is different. It's a good question. And uh, the answer is that, well, nothing gets reborn. There's just moments of experience that arise and cease. And at the moment of death, it's actually no different. It just, it's just qualitatively different. Not, not, sorry, well, it's, I don't know what the word is. It's not categorically different. It's whatever the opposite of categorical is. It's the same category. I mean, it's the same type of thing. It's just of a different level of intensity. Is only practicing meditation correct Buddhism? Or is chanting Buddha's Lotus Sutra and Diamond Sutra also correct Buddhism? So I don't believe that Lotus Sutra and Diamond Sutra are Buddha's sutras. Um, other people, of course, do. Uh, I think they were created later, and they're created for different reasons. The Lotus Sutra was created as a refutation, as a means of, I don't know, of uh, arguing against mainstream Buddhism, honestly, in India. And it was picked up by a Chinese monk who tried to use it to synthesize various diverse views of Buddhism. So it has a colorful history and why it's now seen as, as important to the Mahayana, but it's not Buddhism as far as I'm concerned. And most of it isn't. There's small parts of it that I think are interesting and noble, but most of it, no. Uh, the Diamond Sutra, I'm not even that familiar with, I, but I think it's even less recognizable as the Buddha's teaching. But um, if we just talk about practicing meditation versus chanting, um, it, it honestly doesn't matter what you're chanting per se, because there's two. Well, there's two reasons for chanting. One is to memorize the teachings. So is that Buddhism to memorize Buddha's teachings? Yes, I would. I wouldn't say it's Buddhism to memorize those sutras, just because I don't think that they are. I don't recognize them as Buddhism, though others do. I'm not saying. I'm not trying to to uh, ignore the fact that others disagree with me on that. That's fine. Um, but memorizing actual teachings of the Buddha, I think, are is is valuable, and and a part of Buddhism. Uh, but as far as chanting, see, our meditation is somewhat like chanting. We use a mantra. So there are many types of meditation that use a mantra for the purpose of calming the mind. And that's sort of standard meditation practice, which I would say is very Buddhist. It's just not uh, going to lead to enlightenment. So, so the core Buddhism is really not just the practice of meditation, which chanting can be a part of. I mean, it could be considered a meditation but uh, it is meditation based on ultimate reality, so focused on actual experiences, like noting the stomach rising and falling, for example. That's the only thing that is going to lead to enlightenment directly. So the rest is the rest can be helpful, but um, that's it. yeah, it's, it can still be considered Buddhism, just not core Buddhism, if if that's the right term.
I've gotten increasingly sensitive in my bodily sensations through Upassana practice over a few years. I find my sensitivity being very distracting in my life. How does one manage this? Well, I have to ask first, I won't guess I won't get an answer from you, but um, have you asked yourself, ask the question or, or determine whether you're actually practicing as, as I teach or as I was taught? Um, because the word vipassana is usually used to talk about a different tradition. There's this other tradition that uses it. We we do use it, but we also use the word mindfulness, and I prefer focusing on mindfulness. My teacher did as well, or at least um, the best way to look at it is satipatthana vipassana, because that says more than just saying vipassana. Satipatthana is the practice that we do. Now, that tradition also uses satipatthana, so it's not a difference there. We just... Uh, but. Um, I just want to ask that because if you're practicing in a different tradition, which it kind of sounds like you are because they do focus on bodily sensations, then I would ask if you'd be interested in reading our booklet. Uh, there's a link at the bottom. You can read our booklet and uh, see if that helps you. Um, because if you are reading the booklet, these sorts of things shouldn't really um, cause issues for you. It shouldn't be an, an issue or a, a problem uh, because it's very clear the sorts of ways that you would deal with um, any kind of sensation, whether it's uh, acute or or otherwise. Um, yeah, I would recommend reading the booklet and maybe doing our at-home course, and uh, you can ask me the questions directly in, in interviews. While meditating, I often find myself in an unpleasant mind state and I try, then, to reflect on the moments that brought me there. Is there any use for such reflection, perhaps outside of meditation? Not really. It's not going to help you gain greater clarity. Like, if you can't see the process already, reflecting on it isn't going to make it clearer. What's going to help is, is staying in the present moment and cultivating a clarity of mind that will allow you to have a better perspective. You'll be able to see the process as it happens. You'll catch it. You'll catch it earlier through skill. Reflection isn't the cultivation of that skill. Now, reflection can be used to help remind yourself of things you're forgetting to note, uh, bad habits you're developing in meditation. Reflecting on those can be useful to remind yourself, I'm, I'm actually not quite practicing right, I'm developing this bad habit or that bad habit. Um, but ultimately, the best way to see the process of your mind, the way your mind works, is uh, through clarity, which only comes from being present, and that only comes from being mindful. All things are anatta. Still, one should strive to be mindful. Strive implies control, and so is a contradiction. How can this be eliminated? How can it then be that an eradicated fetter cannot arise again? Strive doesn't imply control, uh, especially when it's related to mindful. Uh, I think it can be misinterpreted as control but i don't think it's i don't think the word strive is 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 out of place um i think striving comes from wisdom 
It come from lots of things. It come from experience. So imagine someone um, has a terrible experience, a state, a loss or something, loss of a loved one, a loss of of health or or well being, a loss of income, whatever, or a a scare. Something scares them that can lead them to strive. Um, it 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 leads to a state of being that is more energetic and so on, uh, that is more alert. That is more more dedicated, uh, but none of those things directly imply control. So I mean, you, you're kind of just philosophizing here and using words that are are are, are confusing you. I, I, I wouldn't worry about such questions. Um, I wouldn't even worry about non-self. All things are anatta. I mean, I wouldn't worry about that. That's what you see. Ironically, as a result of striving. Do we have to choose between the meditative mind and the creative mind? You don't have to choose between anything. You have to see everything clearly. The choosing happens by itself. We choose all the time. And that choosing usually happens out of our control. It's just habits. Uh, choosing comes based on perception. And so meditation changes your perceptions. And so your mind chooses things that are more uh, healthy and more happy, more peaceful. And it stops choosing things that are a cause for stress and suffering. That's all. It's not like there's any uh, in, in decision-making I mean, there will be, I suppose, from time to time, decisions, but those decisions are not not the important part. Why you make the decisions is important. Like, as you become more mindful, you will make decisions in your life. Some of them are important decisions, like giving up drinking, for example, giving up smoking, um, becoming a monk, whatever, going to do a meditation course. You know, these are all seemingly important decisions, but they're not the important thing. They come as a result of the progress that you make on seeing clearly. They can also come from other reasons, uh, fear and desire to escape, for example. But um, most important is the change in perspective. That's what you have to do, gain a clarity of perspective. Since experiences only last for moments, how can impermanence be realized? In my understanding, the realization requires memory of experiences. Memories are concepts. So, is impermanence just a concept? Impermanence is just a concept, yes. I mean, it's not just a concept. Um, but impermanence is, is realizing that experiences are all that exists. Uh, impermanence is, is that... Experiences only last for moments, and well, that's impermanent. Uh, memories are not concepts. Um, calling it a memory and identifying it as a memory is conceptual, but the actual memories themselves are not concepts. They're experiences. So you have experiences of memories, which is complicated, right? There's there's the experience of something, and then there's the recognition of it as being similar to something else or fitting in a certain category, and then there's the perception of of uh, the thing that the new thing is like, and the 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 
associating of two things a past thing and a present thing there's it's a complicated a complex um series of mind states uh, but it obviously happens so it's obviously not conceptual you don't you don't imagine mem memory but the the idea that it is uh the same as the thing in the past is conceptual but it's not just conceptual i mean it is it's a mental conception like like any mental conception you conceive of something as being similar to something else and something reminds you of something else but as for impermanence, impermanence is a concept because impermanence isn't a thing that exists. It it it's a quality of experience. It's a characteristic of experience, but it's a very obvious one. I mean, experiences are momentary, and so poof, they're impermanent. That's all. But the the thing is, we we're so in, it's so ingrained the idea of things existing over time and space that the three characteristics become important because we might tell ourselves that there's only experience but until you see it clearly for yourself you still don't have an understanding of impermanence what are the differences between the concepts of nibbana and complete extinction well, nibbana isn't a concept um, though, I, though I, I don't want to nitpick there. Um, differences between Nibbana and complete extinction? I mean, I think you could call Nibbana extinction. It's, it's kind of the definition, it's kind of the, the literal etymological meaning of the word. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if I really want to touch that. It's not really, there's not really much there of, of interest. Nibbana is Nibbana. Is it unwholesome to listen to music as a layperson? Is it also unwholesome to become a musician? Well, the thing about listening to music is there's going to be liking involved. Um, there's also going to be various other emotions that are all going to be tied up with attachment. But... It's normal for ordinary people to be attached. So the question really is, how far do you want to go with your practice? Is it technically unwholesome? So the liking is unwholesome. Uh, wanting any kind of sadness that might come up or whatever emotion is going to be unwholesome. But that's just the technical definition. It just means it's going to lead to further clinging. Like, like clinging to your ch children is unwholesome. Why? Because it leads to stress and suffering. Uh, it isn't actually a cause for peace and happiness. Um, but most people, you know, telling people not to cling to their children is not something we do. Well, maybe we do. It is better if you can learn to let go. Uh, is it unwholesome to become a musician? Um, it's not so bad. I mean, you do something to make a living. The problem is the thing that you're using to make a living is for the entertainment, for other people's entertainment, and so it involves um, cultivating these emotions in others. Yeah, so your whole um, livelihood is for the purpose of encouraging clinging in people, which is not great from a Buddhist perspective. It's not great. 
Are there any different meditation techniques or practices that you would recommend in addition to the practice of Satipatthana? There, there are four practices that I could loosely recommend. I mean, I guess recommend. I don't have to qualify it, but not recommend on the level of practicing Satipatthana is the point. So as auxiliary meditations, this is the four that the Buddha recommended. Uh, they're called... Uh, uh, something for protective meditations. They support your practice of Satipatthana. This is mindfulness of the Buddha, mindfulness of uh, death, mindfulness of the Buddha, mindfulness of the loathsomeness of the body, or the parts of the body, basically, mindfulness of, or, or practice of metta, and mindfulness of death. Those four are called the protective meditations. I did a video about it at least one some time ago, so you can find it on YouTube. I think it's something like other meditation practices or something. I talked about them a little more. But those four, you can look up how to practice them in the Visuddhimagga. There's, there's instructions on how to practice them. Is there a benefit to try to see clearly and do noting during daily activity as often as possible? Is it advised to do this as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, the point is meditation isn't a magical time where, where magical things happen. Life is a magical time where magical things happen. Enlightenment can happen anytime. There's no categorical difference between doing formal meditation practice and living your life, so... Both times can be used to cultivate wholesomeness, and both times can also cultivate unwholesomeness. If you're not being mindful outside of your formal practice, then you're just accumulating unwholesome states of mind all day, and then you just have to do your best to clean them out during formal meditation, and that's kind of a waste of time. You just take three steps forward, two steps back, it's a lot slower. Whereas if you're diligently practicing, whether it's formal or informal, then practice is a lot more effective, a lot more um, efficient. So that's the real benefit. The benefit is that it's more practice. It's more consistent practice, so it becomes more habitual, it becomes easier, it becomes more effective. That's the, the point. Nothing, nothing mysterious. Struggle to apply Buddhist teachings to my life. For instance, I run a business and a client is refusing to pay for services rendered. I'm being mindful, but should I fight it or let it go? You should always let go. Um, but letting go isn't a choice you make. Letting go comes from wisdom. And much more important than your actions is your state of mind. Do you feel angry, upset? Uh, when you're mindful of those things, you'll be able to make better decisions and you'll struggle less. And so struggling is, is ignoring the part. The important part is not what you do, it's how you do it and your, quality, your state of mind when you do and say and even think. Um, generally, it's hard to be perfectly Buddhist and still be effective in the world, which is why people who are most intent on Buddhism end up 
abandoning uh, material pursuits, living in relative poverty, either as a monk or as a layperson, and just getting by, living a simple life as as honest as they can. So, I, I would I would say, practically speaking, don't beat yourself up about it, and try your best to just. Um, Work on your intentions. Don't worry so much about what you actually do. Work on your state of mind and try and try and see actions as as being either categorically wrong or not. And if a, uh, if an act is categorically wrong, like lying to someone, like stealing from someone, uh, which are two important uh, issues in in business. If it's if it's either of those things, then of course don't do it. But if it's not any of those things. Um, then just work on your state of mind. I mean, I think if you're looking for direction, probably a, a, a highly enlightened person would, yes, of course, never be concerned with what people didn't want to give them. If people don't want to give you something, you don't take it. But uh, in business, I wouldn't worry about being perfect. Try your best and work on purifying your mind because that will start to change your your business ethic. Do you have any advice for how to handle when a friend has insulted you? Should one ever set boundaries or even ultimatums, as opposed to just cutting a friend off completely, or, on the other hand, being a doormat? So again, this is another example of where you need to focus on your state of mind as opposed to what you're supposed to your actions, because the actions aren't what's important. You can do either any of the things you suggest and still... Uh, not have told me about the ethical quality of your mind. So ultimately, those decisions should come as a result of your state of mind, as as opposed to being the focus. Your focus should be on your, your state of mind. And just let the decisions come as they may, because they're not going to be all that important in the end. You might do one, you might do another. Life is just going to continue on. And if you're not ready for it, if your mind is not pure and clear, it'll no matter what you do, it'll always take you by surprise and catch you off guard and lead you to bad decisions and so on. Would eating meat affect our practice? Not really, no. Eating a lot is more likely to affect your practice. Eating unhealthy can affect your practice. Is all desire bad, such as the desire to become pure? All desire is bad. Um, I mean, when we say the desire to become pure, it's sometimes it's not desire. It's just based on wisdom. It's an inclination based on wisdom. So it's just a word. But if it is actually desire, uh, it's hard to say because it's, it's, again, just a word. So what do you actually mean by desire? If it involves some sort of yearning or clinging, then it's always going to be problematic. It's always going to be unwholesome. But often when we say, I want to be pure, we don't. it's not actually wanting. It's an understanding of the importance of it and the negative implications of being impure. Is thinking in concepts like in a job Compatible with awareness of emptiness in principle? 
From experience, when there is mindfulness of thought, the thought dissolves. How to integrate with daily life. Yeah, well, it's, it's not. Those are two different activities. When you're having to think conceptually, you think conceptually. What you can do is intersperse it with moments of mindfulness. That's a common, uh, common practice. So while you're doing your job, you might notice certain emotions that you can be mindful of or physical sensations that you can be mindful of interspersed with your conceptual mental activity. But yeah, you, you can't do both. So it's, it's, it's described as putting down a suitcase yeah, or putting down a, a, a burden. You put the burden down, do whatever you have to do, and then when you're done, you come and pick it right back up and continue where you left off. How does the practice note love? I see it as the mechanic that allows us to notice our existence in our experience, and so not just an emotion. Well, how you see it isn't at all relevant. That's just views and, and conceptions. That's not actual experience. So try and see the difference between that and the actual experience of whatever it is you call love, because I'm not even sure what you're talking about. The word is very, very vague hard to pin down and means so many different things in so many situations so which is why you kind of have to come up with an interpretation or a view or how you see it um that's not useful that's not mindfulness mindfulness is noting what you actually experience so there's more there's likely a happy feeling a pleasant feeling and you can note that there might be a liking of something or someone and you should note that as well and there'll be thoughts and so on. But those thoughts are real, and the feelings are real, and the emotions are real. Love is just one of these things that we call things. We call usually conglomerates of individual experience. What is the most difficult challenge in monastic life? I don't think it's it's inherently different from the challenges uh, of any life. I mean, of course, monastic life is theoretically simpler. It's generally simpler than, I, it's actually radically simpler than ordinary life, but still the same issues, greed, anger, delusion. You know, if you want, if you want, it's not, not a very satisfying answer, but it's all the, probably the best focus is that monks still just deal with greed, anger, and delusion. They're they're just in a better position to be able to deal with them. That's all. So kudos, you know, lucky them. But um, you know, there there are other there are issues that lay people don't have to deal with, like the the challenge of staying celibate. Uh, I think the real re the biggest reason why people did, why men anyway disrobe is is attraction to well heterosexual men anyway attraction to women. I, I mean, not even just heterosexual. Gay men disrobing because of attraction to other men. It's it's men seem to have a big problem, generally speaking, with sexuality and, and attraction and the inability to free themselves from that. I, I'm not quite sure that it's the same. I mean, obviously, women have the same urges, but I'm not sure it's on the same level. Maybe it is. Uh, we don't have as much experience with female monastics, though. Um, so so it may be. 
uh, unique or or maybe different between the the sexes or the genders in, in general. So for male monastics, that probably stands out as the the overarching one. Another one, of course, is the inability to to be uh, to, to give up anger. But again, it's just greed, anger, and then delusion as well. Delusion is another big one. It's all three, really. There's no, there's no escaping those three. And of course, with women, it's going to be the same: greed, anger, delusion. Because we're sociologically constructed, women are like this, men are like that. There's going to be differences across the the genders, but ultimately, it boils down to greed, anger, and delusion. There's no escaping for anyone. Those are the only problems. Is meditating sitting up on the bed due to health conditions acceptable versus not doing it at all? Absolutely, absolutely. And position is not important. But even he followed up his instructions on the postures with yata yata. He said, "How does it go? Yata yata, whatever. Yata yata means however the mind is panihito. Uh, however the mind is disposed." So if you're standing on one leg or squatting or leaning against a wall, be mindful of that posture. So, of course, sitting up on a bed is fine. One thing I do recommend, it's probably not your situation. I mean, with health conditions, of course, just do what you can. But there are people without health conditions who sit against the wall. And I would discourage that. I'd encourage people to try to get in a cross-legged posture that you're that's not leaning against the wall and then let your health conditions dictate what is necessary and for most people that is very challenging but it's not wrong to be challenged it's not a, a bad thing to to uh, struggle through pain, physical pain because being patient with physical pain is a very powerful and, and eye-opening experience that that can lead to enlightenment uh, whereas as opposed to uh, avoiding pain, it is very hard to become enlightened if you're actually actively avoiding pain. Uh, so, so for that reason, a posture like sitting cross-legged with your back, uh, not leaning anyway, not touching, not, not leaning against anything, is very useful. And I think that's kind of slips away sometimes. You see large groups of meditators just always sitting against the wall um, without any real need, just because it's more comfortable. And it's not, that's not very useful. It's much more useful to challenge yourself. But again, with health conditions, don't... You, with health conditions, you know your limits, and you should still follow the same principle of pushing yourself. But you have this added factor that you have to keep into consideration where if you push yourself in a certain way you might actually injure yourself or cause permanent damage which of course is wrong practice don't do that well mostly wrong unless you're really you know like chakupala who was okay with his eyes with going blind uh, because he was very very intent and, and he was he was very he had a very strong intention and, and high level of practice he wasn't even sleeping just practicing all day and all night and he just let himself go blind because he had an eye problem didn't even care so it's not technically wrong but practically it's usually wrong to push yourself too hard against health conditions
What are your thoughts on meditation on koan and concept of sudden awakening? Hmm. I don't want to get into it. We're at the end of the hour, so uh, I would leave that up to people who teach those things. You can ask what they think. I don't teach those things, and I think that's enough of an answer. I teach what I teach, and I don't have thoughts on things that are not what, what I teach. Um, or maybe I do, but I, mean, I don't at the moment, and I don't really feel inclined to cultivate thoughts on such things, so uh, you'll have to be dissatisfied. But I would recommend, if you're interested, check out our practice, and maybe you'll find it helpful. I'm in Stony Creek. How can I meet Buddhist peers so to have some lay friends? I have been and will continue to go to Wat Khmer, but it would be nice to find some people from my background and age. How can you meet Buddhist peers? Well, you can connect with our organization. We have an online community, uh, and you know maybe some of the people are in your area. That's the best I can offer. It's probably... Um, uh, probably un insufficient. It's probably not a satisfactory solution, but it's all I've got. Um, but but what it will help? I mean, it will help that you don't need. Um, I mean, you at least have have connection without having to rely on the chance of finding someone physically close to you. Because our community is pretty great, and you might meet and be able to talk to people on the other side of the earth. Like some of our our closest relationships are are on this online community with people we've maybe never met. So check it out. You can check out our website and find a link to our Discord server. That's where our community mainly organizes. And then check out our resources. Thank I'm you. no longer in Stony Creek, uh, if that wasn't clear. So we've just moved to Kitchener, Ontario, and uh, we're setting up an actual meditation center. We haven't technically opened. We haven't officially opened yet, but I'm here, living in a trailer on the on the property. And so hopefully we'll have uh, a setup in the not-too-distant future where I can start uh, making more professional-looking videos with the help of a cameraman and so camera person and so on. But and and more importantly, we'll be able to open. We're having rooms where people can come and do intensive courses again. Thank you, Bante. Those are the questions that we had prepared for the hour. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you, Chris and Rahid, for your help. May we all be happy and peaceful and free from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.